for many, memorial services are not only a time when we remember and celebrate and mourn the, the ones that we've loved and lost, it's also a time for personal reflection. It's a time when we remember our own mortality, that our lives are in fact very short, which then leads us, of course, to ponder the meaning and purpose of life. This is an incredibly depressing thought for many. The memorial service not only makes us sad, but it reminds us that we've lost someone we love. It makes us sad also because it reminds us that we too will one day die. And we don't like to think about that. We don't like to be reminded that our lives are short and that we will all one day die. And so it's not unusual for people to go to great lengths to avoid attending a memorial service. They'll go really only if they feel compelled to go. But did you know that the scripture says that it should be the opposite? Did you know that the Bible says that there's actually tremendous benefit to be gained from attending the memorial service? And that only the foolish will avoid it. It's true. Ecclesiastes 7 1 through 4, King Solomon, the man who the Scripture says is the wisest person who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. That's a fairly shocking statement, is it not? King Solomon says that if you have the choice between attending a party and attending a funeral, he says, attend the funeral. Go to the memorial service. I mean, think about that the next time Friday night rolls around and you're wondering how to spend your evening. Think about that the next time someone you know passes away and you suddenly have to decide whether or not you should cancel the plans you made for that weekend in order to attend. Solomon says, go to the house of mourning. For verse 4 the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What does he mean by that? It's more than just a self-righteous condemnation of the kind of sin and licentiousness that can sometimes happen at parties, and it's more than just a sourpuss rejection of happiness and fun. Quite the opposite. If you notice verse 3, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. He says there's actually a gladness and joy that comes out of sorrow, that it is better than the laughter that occurs in the house of mirth. So it's not as if he's simply saying, be sad. Rather, he's saying, be happy, but understand that happiness comes by going to the house of mourning, going to the house of sorrow, not the house of mirth. 
It's not unlike the passage that we read at the beginning of this morning's service. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Wisdom comes not through the avoidance of pain and sorrow, but through the proper acceptance and a processing of pain and sorrow in its due season. So what could Solomon possibly mean by this? What benefit is there to gain in the house of mourning? How can we find gladness in the house of sorrow? That's what I want to try to show you this morning from this passage. And I want to show it to you to help you process those uncomfortable questions that you may be wrestling with this morning, or perhaps those questions that you're not wrestling with, but which really you should be wrestling with, you should be asking yourself. There's blessing to be found in facing those questions. And I want to help you find it. So what is Solomon saying here? How does one find gladness in the house of sorrow? I would summarize his answer in two points. And the first is this. Number one, the house of mourning reminds us of death. The house of mourning produces gladness by reminding us of the reality of our death. Solomon describes death in three ways here in the book of Ecclesiastes. You see these three ways come out in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. First, Solomon observes that death is universal. It's something that happens to everyone. As Solomon contemplates the work of mankind and the vanity of it all, how man pours himself out into labor, and for what? He answers, Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 3. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead." The scripture tells us that the penalty for sin is death. If you ever wonder, for instance, why man dies, this is why. It's not just a simple matter of biology, it's a matter of theology. It's actually sort of interesting. Many scientists today are baffled as to why the human body decays and dies. I mean, stars will burn out eventually because they'll run out of fuel. Mountains will break down and decay due to the forces of erosion, but there doesn't seem to be any logical reason why the human body, which is not only able to replenish, replenish itself at a molecular level, but which is also able to replenish its fuel sources, why it must eventually decay and die. And the answer, ladies and gentlemen, is found in Genesis 6.3. When, as God looked upon the wickedness of the earth... He declared, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The answer is found in Genesis 2.16, when God tells Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Man dies because death is the penalty of sin, and all men die 
Because all men are sinners. To quote the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. This is what Solomon notes here as well. He observes, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So death is universal. Second, Solomon observes that death is unending, meaning it is permanent. When a person dies, it's not as if they're just asleep for a period of time and then wake up and resume their activity here on earth. They remain dead. Continuing in Ecclesiastes 9, 4 through 6, he writes, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their life and their hate and their envy have all already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The scripture declares, Hebrews 9.27, that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is no such thing as a reincarnation or second chances after death. A person dies once, and that's it. They're dead. This is the second observation Solomon makes, that death is unending. Finally, he notes that it is unexpected. Just a few verses down, Solomon observes, Ecclesiastes 9, 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Essentially, Solomon notes that we generally don't choose when and how we die. Instead, it catches us by surprise. On an otherwise uneventful day, we will almost all wake up, we'll get dressed, eat our breakfast, brush our teeth, and do all this, not realizing that we are beginning the last day that we will ever spend on planet Earth. This is death, according to King Solomon. And back here in chapter 7, verse 2, Solomon says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. He says that the benefit of the house of mourning is that it reminds us of the reality of death. It forces us to remember that one day, perhaps when we least suspect it, we too will die, and when we die, we will remain dead. Now, already, I imagine some of you are thinking to yourselves, what's the benefit in that? You told me this knowledge should make me glad, and that doesn't make me glad. That makes me very sad. I don't like to think about the fact that I'm going to die. That's why I don't like going to funerals and memorial services. So why would Solomon say it's better to go to the house of mourning because it reminds you that you're going to die? And we're still working our way to the answer to that question, but I'll tell you one reason why it is wise and beneficial to be reminded of your death right now. And that's because death is coming whether you like it or not. 
This seems to be partly what Solomon means when he says, verse 4, that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's what he means when he says that it's better to go to the house of mourning because there you will see your end and the living lay it to heart. The fact of the matter is that death is real. It is real and it is inevitable and it is unending. We can try to deny it or ignore it all we want. It doesn't change the fact that it's still going to happen to us. As the psalmist observes in Psalm 49, the rich cannot buy their way out of it. And as Solomon notes here, not even the righteous can avoid it. Good, evil, rich, poor, man, woman, young, old, they all alike will die. And when they die, that will be it. What happens at that point will will essentially define the bulk of their existence. You know, you know, the first really meaningful death that I ever experienced was my grandma Dorothy. She died in 93, and she was 65 years old when she died. That was 26 years ago, meaning she's already been dead almost half the time she was alive. I'd imagine that most of you in here remember 93, and it wasn't that long ago. And already my grandma has spent half the length of her earthly life in that existence. And really she's just getting started. The second really meaningful death that ever, I ever experienced happened just over a year later. It was the death of my best friend, Eric Morgan. He was 12 when he passed away. And again, that was 25 years ago. Meaning he's already been dead more than twice the amount of time that he was ever alive. Friends, there's a sense in which death and whatever it is that happens after death is more real than life. Because it is more permanent and abiding. The fact is, we're just here for a moment. We're born and then just like that, we're gone. We're here and we're gone. And so you can either deal with that fact or you can, and you can face death with your eyes open so that you're ready for that moment when that time does come or you can try to drown it out and ignore it with laughter and mirth and let it catch you by surprise. It's really your choice. But what Solomon observes is that the wise lays it to heart. They ponder the significance of their death. They face the truth and they order their lives in light of that coming reality. And that leads us to our second point. And if you can't tell, these are really consecutive points, meaning the second point is built on the first. And the second point is this. The house of mourning leads to wisdom. So the house of mourning reminds us of death, and in reminding us of death, it leads us into wisdom. Wisdom is perhaps best defined as the art of living well. It's the skillful application of knowledge for the greatest maximum benefit. And what Solomon is saying here is that the house of mourning guides us into that wisdom. It helps us live well. It shows us how to live for the greatest maximum benefit. Again, he says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, meaning there's greater gain to be had here. How does the knowledge of one's death produce that kind of wisdom? Well, for Solomon, it would appear it happens in two ways. First, it provides the individual with greater joy in this life 
by reminding them that there are so many things that people worry about, which are actually very small. There are so many people whose lives are filled with stress and anxiety over the future, over what's going to happen to them in the next month or the next year or the next five years. And the Bible gives us at least two answers to these worries. The first is to remind us of the power and wisdom of good and the goodness of God. That's the tack that Jesus takes in Matthew 6 when he reminds his listeners, uh, look, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, right? Your heavenly Father takes care of them. How much more is he going to take care of you? He says, listen, don't worry about your life. You can't add a single hour to your life by worrying, so don't worry. Instead, simply trust in the goodness of grace of God to supply your need and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The second answer that you find in Scripture is what you find right here, which is to essentially say, remember, you're only on this earth for a little while, and then you die. This is a refrain that Solomon picks up often throughout this book, and as he reflects on this point, he consistently comes to the same conclusion. He says, you are dust, your life is a whisper, you're here for a minute and gone the next, so stop worrying about the future and simply receive with gladness the gifts the Lord gives you and be thankful. For example, I read this portion a moment ago where Solomon is pondering the works of mankind and this leads him to this reflection on the universality and permanence of death. Well, right before that, he says this in Ecclesiastes 8, 14 and 15. There is vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend you, for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that the God has given him under the sun. And there are more examples like this in Ecclesiastes, but you can begin to see how the house of mourning actually produces joy as we ponder the meaning and significance of death. When we consider the fact that life is incredibly short and that we are nothing but dust, part of what it teaches us is to stop striving and to simply rest in and enjoy what God provides. It teaches us to stop fretting and to receive with gladness the blessing of the Lord. Now, you may be asking yourself, but how can we receive God's blessing with gladness when we realize that it's all so temporary? And if you're not asking that question you need to, the fact is, your enjoyment of God's blessing is only going to be frustrated by the knowledge of death if there's no answer to death. Since even your sweetest joys will be made bitter by the fact that they are only temporary and passing away. So what do we do about that? And the answer to that question is found in the second way that the knowledge of death leads us into wisdom. And that's by showing us that we need to have a right relationship with God. I want you to think about what Solomon says here in verse 1. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. That's a strange statement. Solomon actually says that death is better than birth. I don't know that any of us would naturally come to that conclusion on our own. Again, we celebrate when a baby is born. 
But when we go to a memorial service, we're saddened by our sense of loss. So what does Solomon mean by that? Again, there are two answers. First, he explains throughout this book that death is better because while there is some reward for our labor in life, the fact remains that life is filled with toil and suffering and injustice. A man spends his whole life working and for what? Nothing, Solomon explains. Even if he builds a fortune to pass on to his children, the fact is he often passes it on to a fool who immediately squanders it away. It's all vanity, he explains. He looks out on the earth and he sees that while the righteous do prosper, sometimes the fact remains that the wicked often receive the inheritance of the righteous and the righteous that of the wicked. And Solomon says, none of this makes any sense. It's all foolishness. It's, it's vanity. It's labor and pain and striving without any sense of control or guaranteed result. And so in despair, he looks at death and what he sees is a kind of release. A rest from all his meaningless toil. However, that said, it's not a rest for everyone. As Solomon looks out on the injustice of this world and search for answers to make sense of it all, he finds those answers in the judgment of God. And he actually concludes this great treatise on wisdom with these words. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, when Solomon says that we should enjoy our life, he's not saying that because he believes that when we die, the lights just go out. On the contrary, he points out in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, that when a person dies, quote, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The soul and the body are separated at death, he explains, after which we must all stand judgment before God. Again, in the words of Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And this is the second benefit that comes from the house of mourning. It reminds us of death, and in reminding us of death, it reminds us that we have a very short time to get our relationship right with God before we stand before him in judgment. The problem is, how does that work? How does one achieve a right standing before God? After all, Solomon just told us a few moments ago, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. He goes on to declare in chapter 7, verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This means that none of us, none of us, are ready to stand judgment before God as it is, simply on the basis of our own good deeds. So how does that work? How does one ready themselves to stand in judgment before God if it's not on the basis of their own good works and righteousness? And the answer, ladies and gentlemen, is through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, God's own Son, took on human flesh and became a man in order to live the perfect life that you and I can't live. And he did this on two accounts. First, he did it so that he could suffer the penalty we deserve for our sin in our place, which he did at the cross. And then second, he did it so that he could provide the righteous requirement that God demands from us under the law. And the result is now, 
Whenever a person is united to Christ by faith, their accounts are joined. Christ gains our debts, which he pays for at the cross, and we gain the riches of his inheritance, the reward for his perfect obedience. And this means that whenever a sinner places their faith in Christ, their sins are forgiven. And they can have confidence that when they stand before God and God declares his verdict, he will declare not guilty. And they will enter into his presence where they will experience everlasting joy forever and ever. Listen, friends, this is how we can receive the gifts of this life with joy. Because for the Christian, death is not the end. Rather, death is really just the beginning. It's the beginning of the Christian's reward, the beginning of their rest. And so for the Christian, it really is, as Solomon proclaims here, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. And with that in mind, I want to close with just one more thought. I read this passage to you from Ecclesiastes 9 just a moment ago, and it goes like this. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. This is sort of a weird verse. After all, it almost sounds like Solomon is saying that when we die, we cease to exist. And we know that he doesn't believe that based on what he says in the rest of this book. And not only that, but we just heard him say that death is better than birth. And now he says that the living dog is better than the dead lion. That seems incredibly inconsistent. So what's happening in this passage? I think you find the answer in that word hope. He says, he who is joined with all the living has hope. And then he explains, for the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. He says, their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. You know what Solomon is saying here? It's actually very simple. He's saying that when the dead die, their run is over. They finish the course. Meaning the deeds that they will stand judgment for, they've already been performed. It's sort of like when you were in school and you were taking a test, right? And then the teacher calls out, time's up, pencil's down. At that point, you were out of time. Whatever you were going to get on the exam had already been decided. Even if you hadn't finished the test, you couldn't go back and answer any more questions. That's death. It's God calling out, time's up, pencil's down. But for the living, Solomon observes, there's still hope. Because the test is not yet over. You see, friends, there's a sense in which the memorial service isn't for the dead. It's for the living. We gather because we didn't have a chance to say goodbye. And so we need to say goodbye to James and close the door in that relationship on that chapter of our lives so we can move on. 
We gather because we wish to honor someone who has meant so much to so many people, even though they're not here with us. It's less for James that we gather and more for us. So we can process our loss and grieve in such a way that we can move on. And the reason why we try to move on, friends, is because we're still alive. We're still alive. And this means, ladies and gentlemen, that there is still hope. The dead don't need to ponder death. This is what Solomon means when he says that hope is, quote, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. The dead don't need to ponder death because their course is over. Their race is run. Their reward is already determined. But for the living, there's still time. And this is why it's good to go to the house of mourning. It's good to go to the house of mourning because it reminds us that we are very much still alive. And it it exhorts us to do what we can with the time we have here so that when death finally comes for us, we will stand ready. Ready to stand before God in judgment. Ready to enter into the unending joy of our Master. And with that in mind, my closing prayer here this morning is that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today might be the day when you repent and believe and receive the gift of eternal life. Your race is still very much in progress, meaning there's still time, ladies and gentlemen, still time to believe, still time to receive freely and with great joy the gift of eternal life. Let's pray.